Chapter Twelve, Part One of Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shirley by Charlotte Bronte, Chapter Twelve, Shirley and Caroline, Part One. Shirley showed she had been sincere in saying she should be glad of Caroline's society by frequently seeking it, and indeed if she had not sought it she would not have had it, for Miss Hellstone was slow to make fresh acquaintance. She was always held back by the idea that people could not want her, that she could not amuse them, and a brilliant, happy, youthful creature like the heiress of Fieldhead seemed to her too completely independent of society so uninteresting as hers ever to find it really welcome. Shirley might be brilliant and probably happy likewise, but no one is independent of genial society, and though in about a month she had made the acquaintance of most of the families round, and was on quite free and easy terms with all the Mrs. Sykes, and all the Mrs. Pearson, and the two superlative Mrs. Wynne of Walden Hall, yet it appeared she found none amongst them very genial. She fraternized with none of them, to use her own words. If she had had the bliss to be really Shirley Keeldar Esquire, lord of the manor of Briarfield, there was not a single fair one in this and the two neighboring parishes whom she should have felt disposed to request to become Mrs. Keeldar, lady of the manor. This declaration she made to Mrs. Pryor, who received it very quietly, as she did most of her pupils' off-hand speeches, responding, my dear, do not allow that habit of alluding to yourself as a gentleman to be confirmed. It is a strange one. Those who do not know you, hearing you speak thus, would think you affected masculine manners. Shirley never laughed at her former governess. Even the little formalities and harmless peculiarities of that lady were respectable in her eyes. Had it been otherwise, she would have proved herself a weak character at once for it is only the weak who make a butt of quiet worth. Therefore she took her remonstrance in silence. She stood quietly near the window, looking at the grand cedar on her lawn, watching a bird on one of its lower boughs. Presently she began to chirrup to the bird. Soon her chirrup grew clearer. Ere long she was whistling. The whistle struck into a tune, and very sweetly and deftly it was executed. "'My dear!' expostulated Mrs. Pryor. "'Was I whistling?' said Shirley. "'I forgot. "'I beg your pardon, ma'am. "'I had resolved to take care not to whistle before you.' "'But, Miss Keeldar, where did you learn to whistle? "'You must have got the habit since you came down into Yorkshire. "'I never knew you guilty of it before.' "'Oh, I learned to whistle a long while ago. "'Who taught you?' no one i took it up by listening and i had laid it down again but lately yesterday evening as i was coming up our lane i heard a gentleman whistling that very tune in the field on the other side of the hedge and that reminded me what gentleman was it we have only one gentleman in this region ma'am and that is mr moore at least he is the only gentleman who is not grey-haired my two venerable favorites, Mr. Hellstone and Mr. York, it is true, are fine old beaux. 
infinitely better than any of the stupid young ones. Mrs. Pryor was silent. "'You do not like Mr. Hellstone, ma'am?' "'My dear, Mr. Hellstone's office secures him from criticism.' "'You generally contrive to leave the room when he is announced.' "'Do you walk out this morning, my dear?' "'Yes, I shall go to the rectory and seek and find Caroline Hellstone and make her take some exercise. She shall have a breezy walk over Nunnally Common.' "'If you go in that direction, my dear, have the goodness to remind Miss Hellstone to wrap up well, as there is a fresh wind, and she appears to me to require care. "'You shall be minutely obeyed, Mrs. Pryor. Meantime, will you not accompany us yourself?' "'No, my love, I should be a restraint upon you. I am stout and cannot walk so quickly as you would wish to do.' Shirley easily persuaded Caroline to go with her, and when they were fairly out on the quiet road, traversing the extensive and solitary sweep of Nunnally Common, she as easily drew her into conversation. The first feelings of diffidence overcome, Caroline soon felt glad to talk with Miss Keeldar. The very first interchange of slight observations sufficed to give each an idea of what the other was. Shirley said she liked the green sweep of the common turf, and, better still, the heath on its ridges, for the heath reminded her of moors. She had seen moors when she was travelling on the borders near Scotland. She remembered particularly a district traversed one long afternoon on a sultry but sunless day in summer. They journeyed from noon till sunset over what seemed a boundless waste of deep heath and nothing had they seen but wild sheep, nothing heard but the cries of wild birds. "'I know how the heath would look on such a day,' said Caroline. "'Purple-black, a deeper shade of the sky-tint, and that would be livid.' "'Yes, quite livid, with brassy edges to the clouds, and here and there a white gleam, more ghastly than the lurid tinge.' which, as you looked at it, you momentarily expected would kindle into blinding lightning. Did it thunder? It muttered distant peals, but the storm did not break till evening after we had reached our inn, that inn being an isolated house at the foot of a range of mountains. Did you watch the clouds come down over the mountains? I did. I stood at the window an hour watching them. The hills seemed rolled in a sullen mist, and when the rain fell in whitening sheets, suddenly they were blotted from the prospect, they were washed from the world. I have seen such storms in hilly districts in Yorkshire, and at their riotous climax, while the sky was all cataract, the earth all flood, I have remembered the deluge. It is singularly reviving after such hurricanes to feel calm return, and from the opening clouds to receive the consolatory gleam, softly testifying that the sun is not quenched. Miss Keeldar, just stand still now and look down at Nunnally, Dale, and Wood. They both halted on the green brow of the common. They looked down on the deep valley robed in May raiment, on varied meads, some pearled with daisies, and some golden with king-cups. Today all this young verdure smiled clear in sunlight, transparent emerald and amber gleams played over it. On Nunwood, 
the sole remnant of antique British forest in a region whose lowlands were once all sylvan chase, as its highlands were breast-deep heather, slept the shadow of a cloud. The distant hills were dappled, the horizon was shaded and tinted like mother-of-pearl, silvery blues, soft purples, evanescent greens, and rose-shades, all melting into fleeces of white cloud, pure as azury snow, allured the eye as with a remote glimpse of heaven's foundations. The air blowing on the brow was fresh and sweet and bracing. "'Our England is a bonny island,' said Shirley, "'and Yorkshire is one of her bonniest nooks. "'You are a Yorkshire girl, too?' "'I am, Yorkshire, in blood and birth. Five generations of my race sleep under the aisles of Briarfield Church.' I drew my first breath in the old black hall behind us. Hereupon Caroline presented her hand, which was accordingly taken and shaken. We are compatriots, said she. Yes, agreed Shirley, with a grave nod. And that, asked Miss Kildar, pointing to the forest, that is Nunwood? It is. Were you ever there? Many a time. In the heart of it? Yes. What is it like? It is like an encampment of forest sons of Anach. The trees are huge and old. When you stand at their roots, the summits seem in another region. The trunks remain still and firm as pillars, while the boughs sway to every breeze. In the deepest calm their leaves are never quite hushed, and in high wind a flood rushes, a sea thunders above you. Was it not one of Robin Hood's haunts? "'Yes, and there are mementos of him still existing. "'To penetrate into Nunwood, Miss Kildar, "'is to go far back into the dim days of old. "'Can you see a break in the forest about the centre? "'Yes, distinctly. "'That break is a dell, a deep hollow cup, "'lined with turf as green and short as the sod of this common. "'The very oldest of the trees.' gnarled mighty oaks crowd about the brink of this dell in the bottom lie the ruins of a nunnery we will go you and i alone caroline to that wood early some fine summer morning and spend a long day there we can take pencils and sketch-books and any interesting reading-book we like and of course we shall take something to eat i have two little baskets in which mrs gill my housekeeper might pack our provisions and we could each carry our own it would not tire you too much to walk so far oh no especially if we rested the whole day in the wood and i know all the pleasantest spots i know where we could get nuts in nutting time i know where wild strawberries abound i know certain lonely quite untrodden glades carpeted with strange mosses, some yellow as if gilded, some a sombre grey, some gem-green. I know groups of trees that ravish the eye with their perfect, picture-like effects, rude oak, delicate birch, glossy beech, clustered in contrast, and ash-trees stately as Saul standing isolated, and superannuated wood-giants clad in bright shrouds of ivy. Miss Kildar, I could guide you. You would be dull with me alone? I should think not. I think we should suit. And what third person is there whose presence would not spoil our pleasure? Indeed, I know of none about our own ages, no lady at least. 
and as to gentlemen. "'An excursion becomes quite a different thing when there are gentlemen of the party,' interrupted Caroline. "'I agree with you. Quite a different thing to what we are proposing.' We are going simply to see the old trees, the old ruins, to pass a day in old times, surrounded by olden silence, and above all by quietude. You are right, and the presence of gentlemen dispels the last charm, I think. If they are of the wrong sort, like your Malones and your young Sykeses and Winds, irritation takes the place of serenity. If they are of the right sort, there is still a change, I can hardly tell what change, one easy to feel, difficult to describe. We forget nature, imprimis, and then nature forgets us, covers her vast calm brow with a dim veil, conceals her face and withdraws the peaceful joy with which, if we had been content to worship her only, she would have filled our hearts. What does she give us instead? More elation and more anxiety, an excitement that steals the hours away fast, and a trouble that ruffles their course. Our power of being happy lies a good deal in ourselves, I believe, remarked Caroline sagely. I have gone to Nunwood with a large party, all the curates and some other gentry of these parts, together with sundry ladies, and I found the affair insufferably tedious and absurd. And I have gone quite alone, or accompanied but by Fanny, who sat in the woodman's hut and sewed or talked to the good wife, while I roamed about and made sketches or read, and I have enjoyed much happiness of a quiet kind all day long. But that was when I was young, two years ago. Did you ever go with your cousin, Robert Moore? Yes, once. What sort of a companion is he on these occasions? A cousin, you know, is different to a stranger. I am aware of that, but cousins, if they are stupid, are still more insupportable than strangers, because you cannot so easily keep them at a distance. But your cousin is not stupid? No, but— Well— if the company of fools irritates, as you say, the society of clever men leaves its own peculiar pain also. Where the goodness or talent of your friend is beyond and above all doubt, your own worthiness to be his associate often becomes a matter of question. Oh, there I cannot follow you. That crotchet is not one I should choose to entertain for an instant. I consider myself not unworthy to be the associate of the best of them, of gentlemen, I mean, though that is saying a great deal. Where they are good, they are very good, I believe. Your uncle, by the by, is not a bad specimen of the elderly gentleman. I am always glad to see his brown, keen, sensible old face, either in my own house or any other. Are you fond of him? Is he kind to you? Now speak the truth. He has brought me up from childhood, I doubt not, precisely as he would have brought up his own daughter if he had had one, and that is kindness, but I am not fond of him. I would rather be out of his presence than in it. Strange, when he has the art of making himself so agreeable. Yes, in company, but he is stern and silent at home. As he puts away his cane and shovel-hat in the rectory hall, so he locks his liveliness in his bookcase and study-desk. 
the knitted brow and brief word for the fireside, the smile, the jest, the witty sally for society. Is he tyrannical? Not in the least. He is neither tyrannical nor hypocritical. He is simply a man who is rather liberal than good-natured, rather brilliant than genial, rather scrupulously equitable than truly just, if you can understand such superfine distinctions. Oh, yes, good nature implies indulgence, which he has not, geniality, warmth of heart, which he does not own, and genuine justice is the offspring of sympathy and considerateness, of which I can well conceive, my bronzed old friend is quite innocent. I often wonder, surely, whether most men resemble my uncle in their domestic relations, whether it is necessary to be new and unfamiliar to them in order to seem agreeable or estimable in their eyes, and whether it is impossible to their natures to retain a constant interest and affection for those they see every day. I don't know. I can't clear up your doubts. I ponder over similar ones myself sometimes. But to tell you a secret, if I were convinced that they were necessarily and universally different from us, fickle, soon petrifying, unsympathizing, I would never marry. I should not like to find out that what I loved did not love me, that it was weary of me, and that whatever effort I might make to please would hereafter be worse than useless, since it was inevitably in its nature to change and become indifferent." That discovery once made, what should I long for? To go away, to remove from a presence where my society gave no pleasure. But you could not if you were married. No, I could not. There it is. I could never be my own mistress more. A terrible thought. It suffocates me. Nothing irks me like the idea of being a burden and a bore, an inevitable burden, a ceaseless bore. Now, when I feel my company superfluous, I can comfortably fold my independence round me like a mantle, and drop my pride like a veil, and withdraw to solitude. If married, that could not be. I wonder we don't all make up our minds to remain single, said Caroline. We should if we listened to the wisdom of experience. My uncle always speaks of marriage as a burden and I believe whenever he hears of a man being married, he invariably regards him as a fool, or at any rate as doing a foolish thing. But, Caroline, men are not all like your uncle. Surely not. I hope not. She paused and mused. I suppose we each find an exception in the one we love till we are married, suggested Caroline. I suppose so and this exception we believe to be of sterling materials. We fancy it like ourselves. We imagine a sense of harmony. We think his voice gives the softest, truest promise of a heart that will never harden against us. We read in his eyes that faithful feeling affection. I don't think we should trust to what they call passion at all, Caroline. I believe it is a mere fire of dry sticks, blazing up and vanishing. But we watch him, and see him kind to animals, to little children, to poor people. He is kind to us likewise, good, considerate. He does not flatter women, but he is patient with them, and he seems to be easy in their presence, and to find their company genial. 
He likes them not only for vain and selfish reasons, but as we like him, because we like him. Then we observe that he is just, that he always speaks the truth, that he is conscientious. We feel joy and peace when he comes into a room. We feel sadness and trouble when he leaves it. We know that this man has been a kind son, that he is a kind brother. Will anyone dare to tell me that he will not be a kind husband? My uncle would affirm it unhesitatingly. He will be sick of you in a month, he would say. Mrs. Pryor would seriously intimate the same. Miss York and Miss Mann would darkly suggest ditto. If they are true oracles, it is good never to fall in love. Very good if you can avoid it. I choose to doubt their truth. I am afraid that proves you are already caught. Not I. But if I were, do you know what soothsayers I would consult? Let me hear. Neither man nor woman, elderly nor young, the little Irish beggar that comes barefoot to my door, the mouse that steals out of the cranny in the wainscot, the bird that in frost and snow pecks at my window for a crumb, the dog that licks my hand and sits beside my knee. Did you ever see anyone who was kind to such things? Did you ever see anyone whom such things seemed instinctively to follow, like, rely on? We have a black cat and an old dog at the rectory. I know somebody to whose knee that black cat loves to climb, against whose shoulder and cheek it likes to purr. The old dog always comes out of his kennel and wags his tail, and whines affectionately when somebody passes. And what does that somebody do? He quietly strokes the cat and lets her sit while he conveniently can, and when he must disturb her by rising, he puts her softly down, and never flings her from him roughly. He always whistles to the dog and gives him a caress. Does he? It is not Robert. But it is Robert. Handsome fellow, said Shirley, with enthusiasm. Her eyes sparkled. Is he not handsome? Has he not fine eyes and well-cut features and a clear princely forehead? He has all that, Caroline. Bless him, he is both graceful and good. I was sure you would see that he was. When I first looked at your face, I knew you would. I was well inclined to him before I saw him. I liked him when I did see him. I admire him now. There is charm in beauty for itself, Caroline, when it is blent with goodness, there is a powerful charm. When mind is added, surely? Who can resist it? Remember my uncle, Madame's prior, York, and man. Remember the croaking of the frogs of Egypt. He is a noble being. I tell you, when they are good, they are lords of the creation. They are the sons of God, molded in their Maker's image. The minutest spark of his spirit lifts them almost above mortality. Indisputably, a great, good, handsome man is the first of created things. Above us? I would scorn to contend for empire with him. I would scorn it. Shall my left hand dispute for precedence with my right? Shall my heart quarrel with my pulse? Shall my veins be jealous of the blood which fills them? Men and women, husbands and wives, quarrel horribly, surely. Poor things, 
poor fallen degenerate things god made them for another lot for other feelings but are we men's equals or are we not nothing ever charms me more than when i meet my superior one who makes me sincerely feel that he is my superior did you ever meet him i should be glad to see him any day the higher above me so much the better it degrades to stoop it is glorious to look up what frets me is that when i try to esteem i am baffled when religiously inclined there are but false gods to adore i disdain to be a pagan miss keeldar will you come in we are here at the rectory gates not to-day but to-morrow i shall fetch you to spend the evening with me caroline hellstone if you really are what at present to me you seem you and i will suit i have never in my whole life been able to talk to a young lady as i have talked to you this morning kiss me and good-bye chapter twelve part one